All right. It's been a while. It's been a few weeks. We're going to pick up where we left off, though, with the uses of seed. Um, I don't really remember what seed is. Except that it's magic. So, whatever. Let's figure out how it's used. The uses of seed. Magic may seem like something hopelessly exotic and bizarre, but even at its most outlandish, it was, and in some cor corners of the world still is, a way of addressing big and small anxieties that are an inherent part of the human condition. Being as old as humanity itself, they are naturally still with us today, even though our methods of attempting to overcome them may be different. What are the things that stress you out in your life, and which of you spend a lot of time trying to, con and which you spend a lot of time trying to control? Money, love, lust, friendships, reputation, health, and or an uncertain future, perhaps? These are the same things the Vikings struggled with, and magic, the skilled manipulation of subtle, unseen forces, was one of the techniques they used to try to make important events turn out the way they wanted them to turn out. Said was sometimes a matter of passively perceiving the future, like in Thorbjorg's ritual in Greenland, and at other times a matter of actively altering it. Sometimes it was used within the, condition, within the context of domestic or civilian life, and at other times as part of war. Archaeologist Neil Peirce offers an elegant summary of its uses. Quote, There were cedar rituals for divination and clairvoyance, for seeking out the hidden both in the secrets of the mind and in physical locations, for healing the sick, for bringing good luck, for controlling the weather, for calling game animals and fish. Importantly, it could also be used for the opposite of those things, to curse an individual or an enterprise, to blight the land and make it barren, to induce illness, to tell false futures and thus to set their recipients on a road to disaster, to injure, to maim and kill, in domestic disputes and especially in battle." End quote. Divination served first and foremost to discern the workings of impersonal fate, and secondly to discern the wills of deities that were thought to have a hand in the situation in question. As we've seen, the Vikings lived in a world characterized by a constant tension between fate and free choice. Peering into the future through divination, a Viking Age version of a weather forecast, if you like, enabled people to have a clearer sense of the range of possibilities that were available to them, and which ones were beyond their reach. Then they could develop plans for acting within these limits. Given the pre prevalence of war and strife in the Viking Age, it makes sense that one of the main uses of Seed was to actively produce change. Oh, whoops, let me try that again. Given the prevalence of war and strife in the Viking Age, it makes sense that one of the main uses of Seid to actively produce change was directing the outcome of violent disputes. To quote Price again, Seid's battlefield applications included instilling fear, confusion, conferring courage and clarity of mind, instilling physical weakness, 
conferring physical strength, magically hindering the body's movements, breaking or strengthening weapons and armor, providing invulnerability in battle, killing people, resurrecting dead warriors to fight again, providing protection from sorcerers, and fighting or killing sorcerers. In other words, it could influence essentially any and every aspect of Viking Age conflict, and it frequently played a significant role in turning the tide of battle. The Sexual Dynamics of Sade Sade had a pronounced sexual component, even in instances where the ultimate intentions of the workings weren't sexual in nature. Recall the discussion of sexual and gender-based morality in the Viking, in, in the Viking Age from chapter 6. To briefly recap, the most shameful and dishonorable thing a Viking man could do was argor, a word that meant unmanly, cowardly, and receptive homosexual. For the Norse, these were three ways of saying the same thing, hence their one word for all three. The noun form of argor, the state of being argor, was ergi. The Norse considered the practice of Sade to be inherently argor. In the Edic poem Loki's Taunts, Loki accuses Odin of being a vulva, and that, it seems to me, is holy argor. That was a quote. Likewise, the saga of the Yinglings says that after Sade was invented, it was found to bring so much ergi to those who practice it that <clears throat> honorable men wanted nothing to do with it, and it was taught to sorceresses instead. While it was more or less okay for a woman to practice magic, the same can't be said for men. Why would the Vikings have considered it to be so profoundly disgraceful for a man to practice magic? <coughs> At first glance... <coughs> Jesus. Sorry. At first glance, this seems bizarre, and the sources never tell us explicitly. However, they give us several clues that, taken together, form a consistent picture. For one thing, in a culture where the forthright physical, violent defense of one's honor is so central to the concept of manliness, gaining an upper hand in a dispute through a method as surreptitious and intellectual as magic was likely seen as highly cowardly. For another thing, the association between Seid on one hand and spinning and weaving thread on the other gave Seid an air of being women's work, unfitting for any true man. Also, during the seed ritual itself, the staff seems to have been held between the legs in a sexually aggressive manner as if the performer was riding it. Could this be the origin of the popular Im image of witches riding broomsticks? The sexual connotations of this position were understood by the fact that the word gander, one of the words used to refer to the magic staff, could also mean penis. Gondor could also mean spirit, and it is here we find a clue to what seems to have been the single most important reason why Sade was considered to be Argor. As the Sade ritual began, the practitioner yawned, which had the intent of breathing in spirits that would help the work. 
In the Viking way of thinking, he or she was thereby allowing one of his or her orifices to be penetrated by those spirits, and was therefore effectively the receptive partner in a sexual act. <laughs> Just imagining all these spirits waiting around with their pants down, waiting for somebody to yawn. <laughs> By the same token, a man who was affected by a seed ritual became Argor as the practitioner's emissary spirits entered his body. An especially vivid example of this can be found in the story of Thorleif, the Earl's poet. An Earl was attacked by seed, and his anus became so unbearably itchy due to the spirits entering it that he found himself unable to sit still. <laughs> the only way he could find relief was to have two men pull a coarse knotted cloth between his buttocks. <laughs> As if the tale's early medieval audience needed any additional confirmation of just how unmanly the Earl had become, his beard trotted away. Oh, his beard rotted away as another side effect of the magic. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I think he just had hemorrhoids. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, despite the supreme stigma associated with Seed, men from all social strata were apparently drawn to practice it due to the extraordinary powers it gave them. According to the saga of Harald Fairhair, this even included a king's son. When King Harold admonished his poet Vetgir for practicing seed, Vetgir retorted that the king would do better to direct his order to his son Rognvald, who was a known sorcerer. This was so humili humiliating for King Harold that he had another one of his sons, none other than the brutal Eric Bloodaxe, murder Roggenwald by burning him alive in a hall where he and 80 other sade men had gathered. Evidently, King Harold's shame at having a sorcerer in his family was deeper than his love for his own son. The Social Status of Practitioners of Seed As you probably expect, the social, social status of those who practiced the fearsome art of seed depended largely on the gender of the vulva in question. The male volar seemed to have been more or less universally reviled, although they would still be called upon to perform their services when their clients had need of them. Their clients' contempt was mitigated by a sense of fear and awe at their powers. The status of female volar was more complex, Said women were often quite marginal characters, but more in the sense of being set apart than scorned. They inhabited the hazy borderlands between the worlds of humans, divinities, and other kinds of beings. To emphasize this, even their graves are described as being literally set apart from the graves of others at the margins of brutal grounds. Oh, burial grounds. <laughs> that makes more sense. They were also seen in a highly ambivalent light. On one hand, they were often received with honor, with feasts and lavish gifts, including expensive jewelry, as if they were 
of exceptionally high status. We, some of, we saw some of this in the story of Thorbjorg from the saga of Eric the Red. Eirik the Red. However, this too can be glimpsed in Thorbjorg's tale. They were seen as untrustworthy and therefore bad company to keep, since their host's hospitality was often dependent on them prophesying good fortune and not mentioning bad fortune. In other words, the Volar were held to a Viking Age version of our own platitude that, quote, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, end quote. Price aptly characterizes this aspect of their social role as largely being of ritual reassurance. They were thought to truly possess the ability to see into the future, but they were expected to report back something pleasant, regardless of what they actually saw. When Sade was used to actively accomplish some particular purpose rather than to merely perceive the future, its effects could fall anywhere in the spectrum between help and harm. For that matter, those two poles were often two sides of the same coin. To help one person often meant to harm another. This was especially the case for the Vikings, who believed in an economy of fortune. There was a fixed amount of luck in the world, and when one person's luck changed for the better, someone else's luck necessarily must have changed for the worse. When Seid harmed someone, especially in cases where someone actually died, the vulva who had caused the harm was dealt with just like anyone else who had committed such a crime. Sorcerers and sorceresses were not infrequently killed by official or vigilante justice. The sagas in particular are replete with examples of this, to cite but a few. In Gisli's saga, an elderly vulva named Odbjorg kills twelve people and is stoned to death. Her brother Thorgrim, likewise a performer of injurious sorcery, is later killed too. In the saga of the people of Laxardal, Laxardal, a man named Hrut is involved in a dispute over the ownership of some horses. The sorcerer Kotkel and his sons are enlisted by Hrut's opponent to harm him. One night they climb onto the roof of Hrut's house and begin chanting an exceptionally pleasing and soothing song. Hrut, understanding what's going on, orders his family to stay inside and to stay awake. However, every, everyone is soon lulled to sleep by their music, except for Hrut's youngest and favorite son, Kari. Enthralled by the enchanting sounds, Kari steps out of the house. In the words of the saga, he walked into the Seid and fell down dead at once. For this and other crimes, Kotkel, his wife, and his sons are all stoned to death or drowned. <clears throat> in Erbigya Saga, geez, that's a strange word. Erbigya. In Erbigya Saga, the sorceress Katla makes sexual advances toward a man named Gunlog. After he repeatedly refuses, Katla's spirit attacks him and leaves him incapacitated for many months with severe, severe injuries. When the people discover what has happened, Katla is executed. Those who practice magic weren't rounded up and killed indiscriminately, like in the infamous witch trials of the early modern period. In the above examples from the sagas, the executed sorcerers 
the executed sorcerers aren't killed because they're sorcerers, but rather as part of a more general honor-blood-feud culture, where any murder or grave injury was liable to be avenged by another murder or grave injury. Population control. <laughs> the one partial exception to this in the examples we've seen is the case of the king's son, Roggenwald, and his companions. Apparently, a man's becoming a vulva was seen as sufficient grounds for him to be killed by his family due to the dishonor that he brought upon them all. Shamanism. Actually, turn up my screen brightness. Shaman and shamanism are notoriously difficult words to define. The most precise and generally applicable definition to date is probably that of anthropologist Ach Holtkrantz. Quote, We may define the shaman as a social functionary who, with the help of guardian spirits, attains ecstasy in order to create rapport with the supernatural world on behalf of his group members. End quote. That's the definition we'll use here. social functionary who, with the help of guardian spirits, attains ecstasy in order to create rapport with the supernatural world on behalf of his group members. Okay. The term shaman comes from the Evenki word salmon, with a weird S. The Evenki are a Siberian indigenous people. Technically, the concept of shamanism in the sense of what the shaman does was invented by, invented by modern anthropologists and applied to sufficiently shamanic activities in cultures from around the world in order to more readily discuss them in relation to one another. But they didn't invent the term or the concept out of whole cloth since there are ritual functionaries in many, many cultures from all over the world whose roles and activities are more or less but, of course, never exactly the same as those of Evenki Salman. Salman. This makes the concept a highly useful one, even necessary in some contexts. But it can become problematic when used to gloss over cultural differences rather than merely highlighting a very, very real commonalities amongst very real differences. In this regard, it's no different from the concepts of religion, ritual, and worship. To throw out those latter concepts in a book of this sort would be to lose the forest for the trees, and so too with the concept of shamanism. A discussion of Norse shamanism is therefore not only appropriate, but necessary in order to illuminate the contextualized particular aspects of Norse religion. While the elements in Norse religion that could legitimately be considered to be shamanic in some way or another are too numerous to discuss in full here, two aspects of Viking religious practice stand out as being especially noteworthy in this regard. Broadly speaking, we can divide the shamanism practiced by the Vikings into a female sphere and a male sphere. The female sphere, in a word, was seid, the vulva performed 
her or his ritual actions in the ecstatic trance that forms one of the hallmarks of shamanism. As per Holtkrantz's definition, as we've seen, the practitioner summoned and sent out helping spirits during the course of the sage ritual. And while, while Voller performed rituals on their own behalf in many cases, they were more commonly commissioned by others. Sade workers and Freya and Odin, as their divine models, were classic shamans. The male sphere of Norse shamanism consisted of the elite warrior groups known as berserker, bearshirts. That sounds a lot like berserker. Berserker. And Ulfheitnar, wolfskins. Ulfheitnar. The berserkers, as as we'll refer to members of both of these groups for the sake of convenience, were shamans of a very different sort. After undergoing, after undergoing a period of rigorous training and initiation, they developed an ability to fight in ecstatic trance that rendered them fearless and, according to some sources, impervious to danger, while nevertheless inspiring a tremendous amount of fear in their opponents by their behavior, which was at once animalistic and otherworldly. Perhaps, needless to say, there was no ergy associated with being a berserker. Quite the opposite, in fact. The berserker was seen as being something of a model of manliness. In the year 970, the Greek historian Leo Diaconus witnessed a band of far-traveling berserkers as they fought against the army of the Byzantine emperor, his employer. He says that they fought in a burning frenzy beside the ordinary battle rage paled in com- Oops. He said that they fought in a burning frenzy beside which ordinary battle rage paled in comparison. They roared, growled, bayed, and shrieked like animals, and in an especially eerie and uncanny way. They seemed utterly indifferent to their own well-being, as if lost to themselves. Their leader, who embodied all of these traits to an extreme degree, was thought by Leo to have literally gone insane. <laughs> Leo and the Byzantine forces were veterans of countless battles, so the reactions elicited by the Scandinavians' behavior in Leo and his companion strongly suggests that they witnessed in that battle what they witnessed in that battle was something unique to Scandinavians and something which chilled Leo and the Byzantines to their core. The berserkers seemed to have worked with a number how do you spell berserk? Is that with a Z? That's a completely different word.
No, that's the same word. Hmm. Okay. I'll just call them berserkers. The berserkers seem to have worked with a number of helping spirits in their own, such as the bear spirit and wolf spirits, indicated by the group's names and antics. Some some had Valkyries as their spirit wives. In practice, they had in common with other northern Eurasian shamanic traditions. When they fought, they usually fought for the good of their war band, as well as in many cases their civilian communities. Thus, the berserkers, too, fit Holtzkrantz's definition of a shaman. Both the female and male spheres of Norse shamanism had Odin, the ecstatic one, as the exemplar of of their traditions. The wild, empowering ecstasy was a gift bestowed, bestowed upon them by the terrible sovereign of a god who kept vats of spiritual mead to be dispensed to those whom he found worthy. When the Volar and the Berserkers went into their intoxicating trances, they were thought to have been given a, a covet sip. Oh, they were thought to have been given a coveted sip of this mead. But how Odin but how did Odin acquire this mysterious liquor in the first place? That myth and many others will be the subject of the second part of this book, to which we now turn. So that is the end of part one. I'm going to stop there. The next part, part two, Norse mythology, chapter 11, what is Norse mythology? So that's where I'll pick up next time.